Let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 45, starting in verse 1. The Word of God says this, My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the King. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O Mighty One. In your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Well, the day that my wife May and I got married was a very interesting day. We were supposed to get married outside. And then there were just these horrible thunderstorms, so we had to move it inside at the last second. And the wedding started off fine, started off with me walking down the aisle with my mom, and then following us were the groomsmen and the bridesmaids. And then the wedding march song begins to play, and about 80 people on this side stand up, 80 people on this side stand up, and everybody turns around eagerly awaiting for the bride, for May, to start to walk down the aisle. And the wedding march song is playing for about 45 seconds, and nothing's happening. Like May, she's not coming down the aisle. Now where I'm at, I'm in the middle of the room and May is in the corner behind some door. So I have no idea what's going on. The song continues to play for about 15 more seconds. And still nothing's happening. So at this point, I'm starting to get a little bit worried. So I say to the matron of honor to my left, I go, what's going on? Did, did May leave? <laughs> and she's like, I don't think so. And I said, all right, cool, thanks. Ten more seconds go by, and then finally, finally, I see her. What had happened was something was wrong with her veil, so her and her dad were fixing it all the way up until the last second. But finally, they got it fixed, and finally, I got to see my beautiful bride walk down the aisle. And I got to lock eyes with her, and it's one of those moments that I will never forget. And it's almost as if God orchestrates things so that in that moment when the groom sees his bride, Everything stops and anticipation begins to build and build. 
And the one thing that is fundamentally different between a Christian wedding and a secular wedding is that the gospel is preached at Christian weddings. And it was preached at our wedding, and my pastor at the time, he did a tremendous, tremendous job of making it very clear to all those who were in attendance that this wedding, this marriage that they were about to witness between Dan and May, yes, it was going to show the love that we have for each other as a couple, absolutely. But even more so, what it is supposed to do is show the love that Christ has for his church. You see, when you enter into the marriage covenant, you have to understand that it is not just for our delight, but it's for the display of the glory of God and for the display of Christ's love for his church. And that's what makes marriage so, so important. Yes, we get to enjoy each other and we get to tell our story together as a couple, but really our story is supposed to be telling a much bigger story. You see, in marriage, husbands, we get to show the love that Christ has for the church and how we love and protect our wives. Ephesians 5 says this to husbands. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. In marriage, wives, you get to show the love that the church has for Christ and how you love and submit to your husbands. Ephesians 5 says this to wives. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And the reasons as to why God created marriage are the same two reasons as to why he created the world. He created marriage for his own glory, and he created marriage for his son to show what he was going to do in providing a bride and a spouse for his son. I like how Jonathan Edwards put it. He said this. He said, God created the world to provide a spouse and kingdom for his son. And the setting up of the kingdom of Christ and the spiritual marriage of the spouse to him is what the whole creation labors and travails in pain to bring to pass. So that's why we love marriage, because ultimately it is a picture of the love of Christ for his church. This psalm that we're in today, Psalm 45, it talks about a royal wedding and it talks about a marriage. Now, we don't know much as to the historical background behind it. Some have speculated and suggested that this was possibly Solomon's wedding to Pharaoh's daughter. That could possibly be the case, though we're not entirely sure. But regardless as to whatever the historical background behind Psalm 45 actually is, we know that ultimately it's pointing forward to Christ. We know that for certain because the author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 1 attributes Psalm 45 to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that for a fact. But even if we didn't have Hebrews chapter 1, even if we didn't have that, there are things that you'll see in the text as we make our way through it. Things that will make it very, very clear that this man being spoken about here, the king, the groom here in Psalm 45, is unlike any other individual in existence. The psalmist, he starts off in verse 1, and he starts off by saying this. He says, My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. So I want you to picture yourself as the psalmist here. And you're at this wedding. You're watching this wedding unfold before your eyes. And to you, this is the most magnificent event that you could possibly imagine. And your heart, it overflows. It stirs up to the point where you have to describe what it is that you're seeing. You have to write it down so that others can know. And I want you to notice 
And maybe you caught it as we read through the entirety of the psalm at the beginning. But I want you to notice, at this wedding, who it is that's at the center of attention. It's not the bride. It's the groom. The groom is the center of attention at this wedding. Isn't that so much different than literally every single wedding you've ever been to? You know, at my wedding, May, she was rightly the center of attention. Everybody was going up to her. They're saying, May, you look so great. May, you look so beautiful. And me, I had one person come up to me and tell me I look nice. And it was my mom. There, there at our wedding, the bride was rightly the center of attention. But here, at this wedding here in Psalm 45, the groom is rightly the center of attention. After verse 1, the groom gets 10 verses and the bride only gets 6. So the groom is far, far more important than the bride here. Let's look and see how it is this groom is described. Starting in verse 2, it says this about him. In the first part of verse 2, it says, You are fairer than the sons of men. Now, we need to stop and clarify something here for a second. Because when we see language being used like that, when it says you are fairer than the sons of men, typically what happens is we start to think, well, this is describing his physical outward appearance. So the question is, well, how do we reconcile that when we know that this psalm is about Jesus Christ and we know that we have other verses in Scripture, for example, in Isaiah chapter 53, where we're told that in Christ's physical outward appearance, that there is nothing that would cause anybody to be attracted to him, nothing that would cause anybody to be desirous of him in his outward physical appearance. So what's going on here when the text says you are fairer than the sons of men? Well, when the text says, says that, it is not talking about his outward physical appearance. Okay, And we know that for certain because the psalmist, what he's about to do is he's about to list three reasons as to why he considers the king, the groom, to be fairer than the sons of men, and not one of them has to do with his outward physical appearance. So when the text says that you are fairer than the sons of men, really what it's getting at is that he is the most excellent of men. The most excellent of men. And as I said, we are told three reasons as to why this king, this groom, is the most excellent of men. And the first thing that we are told is Jesus is the most excellent of men because of how it is that he speaks. So get the second part of verse 2. It says this. It says, Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. So you see? You see what it's about? It's about his grace. It's about his grace. Now here specifically, we're told that grace is poured out upon his lips. So it's highlighting the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is gracious when he speaks. You know, we saw this. We saw this all throughout the course of the Lord's ministry prior to the cross. So if you remember in Luke chapter 4, what the Lord Jesus does is he goes into the synagogue. And he goes into the synagogue and he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads from Isaiah chapter 61. And in reading from Isaiah chapter 61 in the synagogue, he is making it very clear to all of those in attendance that he is, in fact, the promised Messiah that they've all been waiting for. He is, in fact, the promised Messiah of the world. And after reading that to them, he says to them, today in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. And here's what Luke tells us how the people reacted. He says in Luke chapter 4, verse 22, it says, 
All were speaking well of him and wondering. They were amazed at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. In John chapter 7, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they send officers to go and arrest Jesus. And then the officers who were sent to go and arrest Jesus don't end up arresting Jesus. And they go back to the chief priests and Pharisees. And the chief priests and Pharisees say, why didn't you arrest Jesus? That's the reason we sent you over there. And their justification for not arresting the Lord Jesus, they say this, they say, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. In John chapter 6, the disciples say that Jesus has the words of eternal life. His words have so much grace, so much power, that in the middle of a raging storm, he could literally just say, hush, be still. And what happens? The winds and the waves immediately obeyed him. In John chapter 11, Jesus says to Lazarus, to dead Lazarus, he says, Lazarus, come forth. And what happens? Lazarus immediately comes out from the dead. Commentators have rightly noted that in that moment, had Jesus not specifically mentioned Lazarus by name, if he had just said, come forth, since there's so much grace and so much power in how Jesus speaks, had he not mentioned Lazarus by name, if he had just simply said, come forth, every single dead person in the entire world would have rose from the dead in that moment. Because that's how much grace and power there is in how he speaks. So he speaks graciously and he speaks with power. So that's the first reason why Jesus is the most excellent of men. Second reason, second reason as to why Jesus is the most excellent of men is Jesus is the most excellent of men because how it is that he does battle. How it is that he makes war. So look at what it says in verse 3. It says this, it says, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty. So you see, Jesus, he is both a man of grace and a man of war. And he fights, he does battle, he fights, the Lord Jesus Christ does, so that he can destroy the works of Satan. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says this, it says, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. How does he do that? How is it that Jesus destroys the works of Satan? Well, look at what it says in verses 4 and 5. It says this, it says, And in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp, the peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. So we see here more specifically what it is that the Lord fights for. And we're told that he fights for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. What does that mean when it says here that he fights for the cause of truth? Well, he fights against those who would oppose the truth of the gospel. He fights for meekness, meaning he fights for humility. He fights on behalf of the humble. He fights on behalf of those who are poor in spirit. The text tells us that he fights for righteousness, meaning he fights for biblical justice. He fights against injustice. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that these are the things that are specifically highlighted for us that we're told that Jesus fights for? Isn't it interesting that we're told that the Lord Jesus Christ fights 
for the cause of meekness, it's a lot different than what the world thinks of when it thinks what a good king and ruler should be fighting for. And there's a connection here. There's a connection between these first two reasons as to why Jesus is the most excellent of men. A connection that we don't want to overlook. So the first reason, Jesus is the most excellent of men because he speaks graciously and he speaks with power. Second reason, Jesus is the most excellent of men because how it is that he makes war. These two things are very much related because the Lord Jesus Christ fights and he makes war by using his word. There's perhaps no better example of this in scripture than in Revelation chapter number 19. Starting in verse 15, the Apostle John, under inspiration of God the Holy Spirit, he says that this is what's going to happen when the Lord Jesus Christ breaks open the sky and comes back. He says this, he says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. Six verses later, he says to those who are in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, The rest of them, those in opposition to Jesus, the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Third reason as to why Jesus is to be considered the most excellent of men. Jesus is the most excellent of men because he rules righteously. Because he rules righteously. Let's look at verses 6 through 9. Starts off and it says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. All your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. So why is it, according to these four verses, why is it that the rule of this king, of the groom, why is it that the rule of Jesus is so good? Well, it's because it's upright. It's noble. It's pure. The text says that he rules with a scepter of uprightness, meaning his rule is perfectly righteous. There is not one bad thing about his rule. Just how good is he as ruler? Well, look at what it says in verse 7. It says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. So Jesus, he loves righteousness and he hates, he despises wickedness. You know, Jesus is the only man that can say 100% of the time, all the time, that he loves righteousness. Jesus is the only man that can say 100% of the time, all the time, that he hates wickedness, that he despises wickedness. He's the only man that can say that. But there's great application in this verse for us that we don't want to overlook because so often as Christians, we'll ask ourselves and we'll wonder and we'll ask the question, how can I know if I'm becoming more Christ-like? How can I know if I'm growing in my sanctification? How can I know if I'm being conformed to the image of Jesus? Well, ask yourself this question. Do I love righteousness and do I hate wickedness? You see, we need to be a people that loves righteousness and hates, despises wickedness. So when we see something good, what do we do? We rejoice and we praise God. When we see something evil and wicked, we hate it. We despise it. 
When we see sin in our own lives, for example, we hate it. We hate our sin. We despise our sin. And listen, it is very, very easy to fall into the trap of thinking that we are loving righteousness and hating wickedness when in fact we aren't doing that whatsoever. I'll give you an example of just how easy it is to fall into this. It is very, very easy to watch entertainment that we know God hates. And yet, what do we do? We rationalize it and we say, you know what? It's really not that bad. We say things to ourselves, things like, oh yeah, you know, this show that I watch, I know that they blaspheme God over and over and over, and I know that there's multiple scenes of lewdness over and over, but you know what? The show lasts for 60 minutes, and if you were to combine all of those scenes, really only makes up like three to five minutes, so it's really not that big of a deal. You know what we're doing when we say things like that? We're giving acceptance to that which we know that God hates, and we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. Now, are we going to do this perfectly? Are we going to love righteousness perfectly? Are we going to hate wickedness perfectly? No, of course not. Okay, we're still sinners. As I mentioned before, Jesus is the only man who can say that 100% of the time, all the time, that he loves righteousness and hates wickedness. But there has to be something that's desirous in us of loving what is right and hating what is wicked. Now, There's a lot more to say here about these middle verses, specifically verses 6 and 7. Verses 6 and 7 are, they're amazing. There's no other word to describe it. Verses 6 and 7 are amazing. Verse 6 says this to the king, to the groom, to the Lord Jesus. It says this, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So you see, the king here, the groom, he's no mere mortal man. The text is very obviously referring to this king, to this groom, as God. It's clear here. It says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, some have attempted to get around what the text clearly states here. So, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses, since they come to the scriptures with the demonic and satanic presupposition that Jesus Christ is not God, they come here to Psalm 45, verse 6, and they'll say, oh yeah, you know, does seem like the groom is being called God, but you know what? This word throne in Hebrew is in the construct state, so it should be translated differently. Terrible argument. Horrible, horrendous argument. Others have attempted to get around what the text clearly says here by acknowledging what it says, by saying, yeah, the groom here, the king here is being referred to as God. But you know what? It's not that big of a deal because ancient kings were almost always referred to as God, so it's really not that big of a deal. And that's true to an extent, right? So Egypt, Greece, Rome, pagan nations, they would often refer to their king, ruler, or emperor as God. You know what nation never, ever refers to their human king as God? Israel. Israel never, ever does that. And yet, here it is here. They're referring to this king, to this groom, to this man as God. And that's because the groom here, the king, is God. He is God, and yet, at the same time, he is distinct from God. The author of Hebrews, he affirms for us that this is, in fact, the case when he says this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. Here he's speaking of God the Father. He says, But of the Son, he, God the Father, says, 
Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So there it's God the Father talking to God the Son, and He explicitly calls Him God. If you needed even more evidence to show that the king here, that the groom, is in fact God, we're told that His throne will last forever and ever. Isn't that comforting to know today? Isn't it comforting to know that there will never be one millisecond in the future where the Lord Jesus Christ isn't seated on his throne, sovereignly ruling over absolutely everything. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now, there's even more to say here about this middle section. And this is really, really cool and awesome to think about. Verse 7, let's take a look at it. So verse 7 starts off, and it says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And then it goes on to say this. It says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. So you see what the king gets here? You see what the groom gets? What the Lord Jesus Christ gets? He gets joy. He gets gladness. He gets happiness. Isn't it so cool to think that adjectives that you and I can use to describe the Lord Jesus Christ are joyous, happy, and glad? He's glad the Lord Jesus is, glad that he has a bride. He's glad that he could come here and live and die and rise from the dead for his bride. He's glad over the fact that his reward is to have a bride, to have a people for himself. He's glad about that. He's glad over the fact that he could come here and obey the will of his Father at every single moment. He's glad about that. I think sometimes... We tend to think of Jesus' obedience to the Father as something that he didn't really want to do. Almost like how we obey our boss at work. Right? Our boss tells us to do something. We really don't want to do it, but we do it anyway because that's the nature of the relationship. But that's not at all what we're talking about when we talk about Christ's obedience to the Father. No, he delighted 100% in the fact that he would obey his Father. He delights 100% in the fact That he is our savior. Think about this for a second. Think about the joy. The joy that Jesus had when he went to the cross. What great joy he must have had knowing that what he was doing was going to save his bride. What great joy he must have had on that Sunday morning when he rose from the dead. Knowing that what he had just done had saved and redeemed his bride. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says this. It says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And the result of it, the result is him being glad beyond his companions. That's why the text says, it says, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Meaning, The happiest man in the universe is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the happiest, most joyous person in the entire universe. It's amazing to think about. Charles Spurgeon, he had this to say. He said, The joy that was set before Jesus was the joy of saving you and me. I know it was the joy of fulfilling his Father's will, of sitting down on his Father's throne. But still I know that this is the grand, great motive of the Savior's suffering. The joy of saving us. The joy of saving us. 
So, so far in these first nine verses, we've seen the king, the groom, be rightfully praised for who he is. And now it's time to transition and to talk a little bit about the bride. And that's what verses 10 through 15 do. So let's, let's read these verses together. It starts off in verse 10. It says this to the bride. It says, Listen, O daughter, give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. Now, there is something very, very important being said here to the bride. And it's what we find in the second part of verse 10. It says this to the bride. It says, forget your people and your father's house. So the bride, what she must do, she must put her former ways and desires behind her. You know what this is a picture of? This is a picture of what the sinner must do when coming to Christ. Now, when the text says, when it says here, forget your people and your father's house, what it doesn't mean is that like, you can't have relationships with people you knew prior to coming to faith in Jesus or something like that. Okay, It's not what it means. But what it does mean is that you must put your former ways and desires behind you. Really what the text is getting at is it's getting at the fact that we ought to prize and treasure Jesus above absolutely everything. Above absolutely everything. Above things like ethnicity, we need to prize and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. Above things like racial heritage, we need to prize and treasure the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, that's something that the world would flip around. The world will look at it and they would say, no, no, no. The things that you need to prize and treasure most are your ethnicity and your racial heritage. And the Christian looks at that and says, no, no. The thing that I ought to prize and treasure most is Jesus. Jesus is the one that I ought to prize and treasure most and above absolutely everything. And that's a question that we all need to honestly ask ourselves. We all need to honestly ask ourselves, can I say that I prize and treasure Jesus above everything? Above everything. If somebody were to ask you, what is it that you prize and treasure most in life? How would you respond to that question? Would you respond by saying, well, I'm a Christian, I prize and treasure Jesus above everything. He's my all in all. Or, or would you respond kind of like this. So somebody asks you, what is it that you prize and treasure most in life? Would you respond like this? Oh, there are so many things that I prize and treasure. You know, I prize and treasure my job, and I prize and treasure my education, and I prize and treasure the ethnic tribe that I come from, and I prize and treasure the volunteer work that I do. And I really love sports, so I prize and treasure the New York Yankees or the New York Mets or the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, oh, and by the way, I'm also a Christian, so I prize and treasure Jesus also. That is not the way that the Christian is supposed to respond to that question. Not at all. We belong to Christ. And being a Christian is far, far more important than being anything else. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 
says this. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And as a people of God, what we ought to do is we ought to prize and treasure Jesus. And we deny ourselves daily to follow after him. The Lord Jesus Christ, he tells us this in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. He says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And listen, there is great joy that comes from following after Christ. Tremendous joy that comes from following after him. That's why it says here in verse 15, to those who are coming to the king, to the groom, it says, in verse 15, it says, they will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. So you see, you can only be truly glad, truly joyous, by knowing Christ. That's the only way. So often, so often it seems that people will say, they'll say, well, you know what I want in life? I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. And in a very obvious and real way, God in his common grace does allow for people to experience worldly happiness, which is just a testament to God's goodness. But true happiness, biblical happiness, eternal happiness, joy and gladness can only be found by knowing Christ. And since that's the case, since that's the case, it would only be fitting for this psalm to end by telling us something more about Christ, by telling us something more about the king, about the groom. And that's exactly what it does. Verses 16 and 17 ends with a benediction to the king. Here's what it says in verse 16. It says, In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. So the groom, what he'll have is the groom will have a people. The groom will have children who go into all the earth. And ultimately, it will result in praise for the groom, in praise for the king. Verse 17 goes on to say this. It says, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. So God, by the pen of the author of this psalm, he promises his son, he promises the king, the groom, the Lord Jesus Christ, he promises him that his name will be remembered in all generations and nations will praise him forever. The peoples will give him thanks forever and ever. And before we close, before we close, I want you guys to notice in Psalm 45 the three therefores that are here for us in the text. So the first one we saw in verse 2, that since grace is poured out on his lips, therefore God has blessed him forever. Second therefore, we found in verse 7, that since Jesus loves righteousness and hates wickedness, therefore God has anointed him with the oil of joy above all others. And the last therefore is found for us here in verse 17, that since God will cause his name to be remembered forever, therefore the nations will praise him forever. The peoples will give him thanks forever and ever. So you see what it's about? It is all about Jesus. 
It is all about Christ. He's the king. He's the groom. He's the groom that is delighted to look out for and care for his bride, the church. And the response, the response of all people everywhere is to honor him. The response is to bow down before him. That's why it says this in verse 11. It just sums it up so great. Second part of verse 11, it says this. It says, because he is your Lord, bow down to him. Bow down to him. Submit to him. Maybe you're here today and you have yet to bow down to the Lord Jesus Christ. But you've heard about Christ. You've seen how it is that he looks out for his bride. And maybe you start to wonder and say to yourself, you say, Jesus is awesome. And I need to be rendered among those who consider themselves the bride of Christ. How do I do it? How is it that I bow down before Jesus? Well, it is so, so simple. Believe the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, the gospel, it starts off with the bad news, the terrible news. And the terrible news is this. You are a sinner, a hater of God, an enemy of God. That's what the Bible says. And because of your sin and wickedness, before the God of the universe, the God of the universe who hates wickedness, you are justly under his wrath. And it's very bad news to be justly under the wrath of God. And God would be perfectly just right now to strike you dead and to send you to hell forever. That's how serious sin is in his sight. But then there's great news. Then there's incredible news. And the incredible news of the gospel is that God the Father sent God the Son. The Lord Jesus Christ, the King, the Groom here. And God the Son, he went on a rescue mission to save his bride. And he willingly came here and he lived a righteous and perfect life that you and I could not live. And then he died a terrible death on the cross. And on the cross, what happened was the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin was poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the Lord Jesus, he died on that cross after being beaten, mocked, spat upon by sinful men, by evil men. The only person ever in the history of the world who didn't deserve to die, he died on that cross bearing the wrath of God for his bride. And then what happened? He did not stay dead. He rose from the dead three days later with fullness of joy, affirming every single thing that he said would happen, knowing that what he had just done had saved his bride, had redeemed his bride, had purchased a people for himself. And the Bible is clear. If you would repent of your sins and turn in genuine faith to him, he'll save you. You know, it's good news. It's good news to believe in Jesus. It's good news to have a joy that surpasses absolutely everything else. You can only have that joy by knowing Christ. Let's pray together. God, we, we, we thank you, God, for, for your word. We thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus for us. We thank you, God, that Jesus loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. We thank you, God, that Jesus went on a rescue mission to save us, that he saved us from hell, which is the place that we all deserve to go to for our sin. We thank you, God, that you are a gracious God. We thank you, God, that you are a loving God. We praise you, Lord. Praise you for the fact that 
that you saved before the foundation of the world, that you knew that we would be saved, that you predestined us to be saved. Just pray, Lord God, that if there's anybody here who hasn't yet turned to faith in Christ, pray, Lord, that you would convict them of their sin. Pray, God, that they would turn to faith in Jesus Christ today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.